Welcome to the Sober Nation FM podcast, where we're putting recovery on the map. I'm your host, Jonathan Sylvester. This show is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Do you want to take your recovery to the next level? Do you want more support, community, and fellowship? Sobriety Engine is an incredible community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. You can get a ton of great tips, resources, and guidance to help you succeed in recovery and in life. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. Sober Nation FM is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle all while supporting your sobriety, then you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave a review. Nation, let's hop right into today's episode. Today, I'll be speaking with speaker, comedian, and best-selling author, Tiffany Jenkins. Thanks for coming on the show, Tiffany. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Yes, yes. So we have a lot to talk about today. But first, I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about what life was like before you got sober and how you actually found your way into recovery. Sure. I was addicted to drugs for about 10 years. And okay. in, in that time, it was like, I, I didn't think that there was a future for me. Mm-hmm. It was so dark and I was living for the moment and every single decision was like just enough to get me through the day. And I would tell myself every single day, okay, you know, tomorrow I'm going to get clean. I just got to get through today and I'll make a plan to get clean and it never happened. I, I turned into a person that I never thought I would be and I was doing things I never thought I would do. Wow, wow. And so where did all that start? Like what age did this start for you? It was high school. My senior year is when like everything started. It was the first time I ever did anything. I hadn't mm. smoked, I hadn't drank. I made it all the way through high school and then it started with alcohol for me. And once I had a drink, it it was like for the first time I felt numb instead of anxious and depressed and out of place and awkward. I just, I didn't feel anything. And so I started chasing that. And then the consequences started rolling in. So three months after I had my first drink, I dropped out of school. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was super sudden. And with that came a lot of shame and guilt. And I, the, I, the only way I knew how to numb it was with substances. And so I was introduced to my drug of choice when I was like 23 years old. So I had no idea about addiction. Like back then we didn't have phones and computers and things right. like that. Thank God. And yeah, there would be, yes. there would be evidence. <laughs> yeah. I think about that every single <laughs> yeah. day. Um, but I, so I didn't know, I didn't see people overdosing. And mm. it, to me, when I thought of an addict, I thought of just like an old guy living under a bridge and robbing houses. I never thought that it would be me. And so when I started doing pills, it was fun at first. I had no concept of detox or, you know, stealing or anything like that. And there was a night where my body began physically depending on it. And on that night I felt so sick and I was like, I don't know what's going on. And my best friend said, it's probably because you haven't done a pill today. And so I did one and instantly that pain was gone. And that was when I stopped doing the drugs because it was like fun and quirky and started doing them because I needed them in order to not feel like I was dying. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just to survive and really, I mean, it's a scary thing, right? Because I, I don't know about you, but pain pills ended up being my drug of choice. And it was like, I, I couldn't even function without, like, I literally could not do anything is, is yep. the point it got to. Yeah. It's so bad. It's not just the physical. There's like this mental hold also. Mm. And so for me back then, um, I, I hadn't lost anything. I hadn't sacrificed anything. It was just, I could pay this money and have this magical thing that made me not be in pain. So it was like a no brainer. I'll just do it today. Yeah. And it never occurred to me how dark things would get, mm. but it was, I couldn't shower unless I had one. I couldn't do laundry unless I had one. I couldn't go to a family function unless I had one. And my mom ended up getting really sick and she passed away. I found out I was getting a trust fund from her and I decided to use that money to go to rehab. Oh, wow. Because, well, yeah, but it's not because I wanted to. It's because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. I was defiant. Like at every turn, I thought I knew more than they did. I thought I could still drink. And I, like, I would tell them too. I'm like, you don't know me. The pills are my problem. And once I'm done with these, I'll be fine. So like I celebrated Sorry, I'm a little under the weather, by the way, which is why Sorry. I sound like a grown man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I celebrated like graduating my rehab by drinking because oh. at the time I didn't grasp the concept yeah. Yeah. of the problem being me and the problem being so deep, you know, that everything was the problem. So I hadn't done pills and I met this police officer at a bar and he wanted to date me. And in my mind, I'm like, this is perfect. I won't relapse on the pills if I'm with this cop because you know he'll arrest me and I'll go to jail. And I remembered the stability that my stepdad provided who was a cop when I was little. So we started okay. dating and, um, and my addiction was like, hey girl, I missed you. And I'm like, I can't, but you know, then I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna give in because it, this relationship is, he's not that great anyway, and it doesn't matter. So I, I, I relapsed. And when I went to his house to break up with him, he, he had no clue I was high. Wow. And I'm like, what's going on, man? This is his job. Like, mm -hmm. how does he not see it? And so I was like, wait, maybe I don't have to break up with him. Maybe I could have just have fun on the side and continue this relationship. And so that is what I ended up doing for about two years. Wow. Wow. It's interesting how you're literally describing the pills as like the other person in the relationship. <laughs> yeah. That's weird now that you mention it. Yeah. 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 Cause I've heard like a common thing and maybe I did this. I can't recall exactly what, when I was in treatment, but you know, like writing a goodbye letter to like, yeah. you know, the drug of choice or whatever. Yes. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I get that. So you're dating this cop. And where does it, I'm, I need to know now, like, where does this lead? Yeah, not to a good place. Okay. That is for sure. On his end, I think that when you love somebody, you kind of turn on these blinders in a way. It's like, you don't want to believe it. And so you start ignoring the red flags. And I was also such a good manipulator mm -hmm. and liar. Like I would plan lies out days in advance. So I would like drop a seed of a lie on Monday because I knew I would need it on Thursday. My mind was constantly going. And so I would put this mask on 
I'm a good person. My family should be proud of me because I'm with a police officer and we own a home and we have a puppy. And as like my desperation grew, um, my morals dropped and I was stealing and I was stealing things from around our house that belonged to him. And um, eventually I stole a couple of um, weapons from the house and sold them, which I don't recommend. Yeah. To those yeah. of you listening, mm-hmm. because um, the next day I was arrested out of my bed and I was charged with like 20 felonies, including grand theft of a firearm times three. Wow. Was it one of these situations where even if he wanted to help you, he couldn't? A hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. He, I had been pawning items and like, okay. if you, had, yeah. if you know, you know. Yeah. Like, oh, I know. I know. We, we've been <laughs> to the pawn shop a few times. Yeah, I remember I first discovered pawn shops when I, during my addiction, I was like, no way you can get the stuff back. This is so convenient. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that I was going to make it back to get the stuff and I never did. Yeah. Um, It was like items around the house were no longer items and they had no, they were just another day Mm -hmm. of surviving. And so like the necklace my grandmother gave me when I was a baby no longer mattered because it meant that for two days, I wouldn't have to worry about being sick. And it was so twisted. So um, he started, he called the police to do an investigation because his weapons were missing and items from around the house were missing. And when they began checking local pawn shops for items matching the description, my name popped up and my license popped up. And so they they came to him and they're like, Hey man, did you know your girlfriend's doing this? And he just broke down and they're like, I'm sorry. You know, we have to, we have to take her in now. You can't pretend like we didn't see it. Right. Wow. Wow. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing they don't just let you walk free from all of this. You know, that was not my guess at the time. I thought for sure I'd be let off the hook. Mm -hmm. Like I felt invincible as a cop's girlfriend. And so even that night, when I, I, you know, they were taking me away in the police car. He's like, where do you want me to take your stuff? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, you can't come back here. And I was so shocked that he was breaking up with me. Yeah. And then I'm like, I don't know. I'll figure it out when I get out tonight. Like I'll make a plan later tonight. Like I thought for sure I was off the hook, but that's not how it works. And I learned you have to be bailed out, but nobody was bailing me out. Mm -hmm. My bond was high. and everybody was done. Like I had never been to jail before. And I, I was shocked that nobody was helping me. And in hindsight, I get it. And I'm so grateful because it took me realizing nobody was coming to save me, to find the strength to to save myself. But I remember at the time thinking like, this is so crazy. I don't belong here. I don't deserve this. I was still in that victim mentality for a really long time. And I ended up spending 120 days in jail. And the longer that I sat in there and the drugs left my body and I saw people get released and then get rearrested in the time that I'm still sitting there, I'm like, dude, you were free and you're back. What are you doing? Like, I was so sure that if I was ever let go, that I would never come back. Mm. And I, you know, it could change tomorrow, but I... I knew that I was destined for more like that wasn't where I belonged. And so um, my father, I don't want to get too much into it because 
I didn't write a book about it, but um, <laughs> just can't, can't give it all away. I know. I never do that. I don't know why I just did that. But I think because I'm giving so many details, I was like, but my dad visited me. It was a really okay. pivotal moment in the book. It's the part okay. that people talk about the most. But he visited me while he was in, while I was in jail and told me that he had gotten sober. And oh, wow. after being an alcoholic my whole life, and I wow. was just like amazed. And he's like, so you need to get your stuff together and get out of here so we can do this recovery thing together as a family. Wow. Yeah. I was like, well, dang. And like the biggest thing for me was the fact that he still loved me. And he Mm -hmm. told me, I'll never stop loving you. You're my kid, you know, and, and there's nothing you can do to change that. And up until that moment, I felt unlovable up until that moment, I felt so guilty and ashamed of who I was and unworthy of love. And I wanted to die every single day because I felt like I was born by mistake, but hearing somebody like when I'm at my lowest, tell me that I'm worth it was like, okay, if this person can love me during this, like, why can't I love myself? And that was when I started looking for treatment options. That's a good point. Okay. So, so what route did you go back to rehab or what ended up happening? Yeah. So I, um, as part of my sentencing, I was given two options Um, one of which was just four more months in jail and then three years probation Okay. or two more months in jail, six months residential treatment program, three years probation. And everybody was like, girl, take the one that isn't rehab so you can be free. And it sounded really nice, but I knew, I knew that I would just end up right back there. Like my brain was going to be with me wherever I went and I needed help. I needed to fix it, period. And so thank God that was an option. Yes, I'm so grateful because I, I wouldn't have been able to do it. I wouldn't have been able to afford it. I had nothing, you know? And so, so I did, I took that and they picked me up directly from jail and I spent six months living at a rehab. Wow. Yeah, wow. best decision, best decision I ever made. Like what the heck did I have to lose? You know what I mean? I had nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. So, so what, you know, I, I lived with these people who were teaching me how to live life. I had never known. I had spent so much time with a one-track mind focused on getting high. I didn't stop to take time to figure out how to be a good person, how to be kind to people, how to pay my bills on time and things like that. And so I'm so grateful for rehab. It's the greatest thing that I've ever done. That's awesome. Yeah. And again, I mean, that's really great that they gave you that choice and that you made that choice, you know, and it's crazy to me. Like I literally just interviewed another guest on the show that said, they had inherited a large sum of money and they were kind of, you know, it wasn't 100% their choice, but, you know, they used that money to go to, uh, to treatment. I know the first time <gasps> around it, it didn't work 100% for you, but still just the fact that, because I personally feel like had I gotten a lump sum of money, uh, you know, it would not have been going to, uh, towards getting sober. That's for sure. I, that that's probably what would have, uh, sealed the deal for me, yeah. so to speak. So uh, now when you were in treatment, you were there for six months. So I'm, I'm sure there was a lot going on, probably a lot of counseling. And, and was this, uh, was there a particular treatment program that they kind of steered you towards? Was it like 12 step or what did you get into while you were, um, while you were there? Yeah. So it was the 12 steps. Okay. It was no- but like, so for example, I'd wake up in the morning, first thing, 7.30 a.m., we would go to an AA meeting. And then okay. at night, we would go to NA. 
Oh, that's cool. Okay. And, yeah. And in between there was classes and the place I went to specifically was faith based. Mm -hmm. um, and I, there was some things that they would say that didn't resonate that I, I wasn't ready for, okay. but I didn't let it stop me. Like I took what worked for me and I applied it to myself and, and I left the rest behind. Yeah. But yeah. So, so I had to get a sponsor and I had to start working the steps. And I always say like, for me, the 12 steps was like taking a college course in myself, wow. going to, to the deepest depths of my being and getting to the root of the problem. And that's what the steps did for me. It was like an inward look and being able to talk to somebody about it. So for the first time, I wasn't projecting blame on everybody else for my problems. I was able to look at my part in it. And that was really super pivotal for me. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and so as you're going through this and, you know, cause again, you were there for six months when you were getting started in the beginning, what would you say was the biggest thing that you were struggling with early on? Just like in the beginning of your sobriety. I think fear was really big for me. I was so afraid um, because I'm powerless over addiction. I was so afraid that I was going to ruin everything. I was so afraid that I was going to relapse. I was afraid I, I couldn't get clean. I was afraid that I was going to disappoint everybody again. And um, one of my counselors was like, while fear can be healthy in certain situations, fear isn't going to be enough to keep you clean. So you need to switch that fear of what can happen to having this blind faith that wonderful things will happen. Mm -hmm. And once I started shifting my perspective to, oh my gosh, what if I use to, I'm not going to use today and today's gonna be a friggin' amazing day and I know it for a fact, I started to believe it after I told myself that long wow. enough. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, and I get the, the fear thing for sure. And I think one thing that was just mind blowing to me is having the realization that uh, fear of success mm -hmm. was even a thing for me, you know, someone that was such an underachiever, <laughs> you know, but I, I was, it was like, I was afraid. I think part of the reason I was afraid of good things happening is because I was just, again, I was convinced that I was going to screw up yeah. whatever good things happen. And, yeah. um, you know, I think that's, that's probably pretty, pretty common. Yeah, absolutely. I, I and I I still to this day kind of struggle with that a little bit. Like I wait I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop mm. because of all the terrible things that I had done in the past. I'm mm -hmm. like, okay, things can't be going this great for too long because right. eventually karma's going to and it's just this dark thing looming in the background and I'm actually working with my therapist now to recognize like, hey, you know, you have you've put so much good out into the world since that time, like you're, you're square. <laughs> like, yeah. and I'm not saying that what I've done it has ever made up for the hurt that I caused everybody and the pain, because I don't think that, um, to me, no matter what I do, um, it won't take that away from people. And I don't ever want to downplay that either. Sure. Um, because I did, I did a lot of really terrible things. And so every day, all I can do is just try to do the best that I can um, in hopes of making it so that all of those really bad things weren't in vain. Mm. You know what I'm saying? I feel yeah. like I was given a second chance. A lot of people don't make it to where we are, um, you know, to how long do you have clean, by the way? I didn't. Uh, so seven years, <gasps> seven years in May. Yeah. 
That's awesome. I have eight years in uh, November. Awesome. So we so cool. you got clean in 2012 too? 13, 13. I suck at math. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. That's what I meant. <laughs> but that's really close, super close exciting. Enough. Yeah. That's so weird. Our lives at the same time, we're like, skirt. Okay, yeah. you guys get it together. Yeah. Well, that that's so cool that you're, you know, that you're working on that too. Um, I think one of the one of the guiding themes or ideas that comes up in every one of these interviews is that I rarely talk to people that are staying sober and doing a ton of cool stuff with their lives like you are that are just doing one thing. Like they're doing a lot of different things for their recovery and and in their lives. You know, it's never just like I'm just doing this. You know, that's the only thing I do, you know, and it was so sorry. I don't know if it was oh, cutting it out on up? your end. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, it's all right. It's all right. You you cut out. Oh yeah, you're a little laggy there. Okay, are we good? Yeah, I'm sorry. Is no, that, I don't know. You're frozen, and you look like Joe Goldberg from okay. the show You. <laughs> okay, I think we're okay now. What was it? I don't know. It was freezing up on your end for a second too. Oh, I'm so sorry. Okay. Oh, anyway, I don't know why. That's all right. I think we got it in there. We're okay. So um, you wrote a book, which you mentioned. Mm -hmm. I think a few people have read it. <laughs> casually. I casually dropped it. Yeah. So no, but you're, you're, it's a best-selling book, which is awesome. And it's titled High Achiever, The Incredible True Story of One Addict's Double Life. And I think we were talking about that double life a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, I, I, and- I think everyone can can understand just like the double life. I mean, and, and you described it really well in one sense. Like for you, it was someone that was planting these seeds weeks ahead of time. You know, you're you're dating the cop, like everything looks good on the outside, but you know, totally different on on in reality, right? And so how did you decide to actually write a, a story about your life and write this book? How did that all come about? I I was, I was looking on the internet and there was, it felt like there was nothing. Like everything was so superficial and so perfect and photoshopped and edited. And I was like, man, all you see are these sad news stories about people dying and overdosing and people saying all these harsh things about addicts. I remember like reading comment sections under videos of celebrities overdosing on drugs. And I'm like, there's so much hatred and I thought that maybe by sharing a little bit of my story, it would show people that not all addicts are lost causes. And at this time, um, you know, I had followers and, you know, they thought I was funny and hilarious. And I thought it, I'd give them the old whammy and be like, by the way, I am an ex-IV drug user and I have been to jail so that, and that's what would happen. People would find me from my funny videos and then they'd find out about my story and be like, wait a minute, you look nothing like what I think of when I think of an addict. Okay. So, and, and, and sorry, I do, cause I do want to ask you about the videos here in a minute, but so you had built up this following before people even knew that. Um, it was really like simultaneous things okay. like blew up overnight okay. with me. Okay. And so I was just writing about motherhood stuff initially and parenting. I was a mommy blogger in the beginning. Sure. Um, and then I, I, 
one day I just started writing about my addiction and people were so intrigued that I was like, I should write about my time that I spent in jail so that if anybody is like debating on whether or not jail is the place for them, I could kind of sway them. And so I was actually releasing a chapter a week on my blog. Oh, wow. Okay. And people were like, dude, I wish I could send this to my son who's in jail or, you know, my sister who's in rehab. And so I thought about how I could make that happen. I decided to take all the blogs down off the website and turn it into a book. And so I continued, yeah, I continued writing a book. Nobody wanted to publish it. So I just self-published it myself on Amazon in 2017. And it sold like 50,000 copies. And then it was picked up by Random House like a year later. Wow. Wow, yeah. that's so cool. That's it's so awesome. crazy. I didn't graduate high school. Like, you know what I'm saying? So the fact that somebody like me can do something like that just goes to show, like, no matter where you are in your life, if you're super low, if you're struggling, I promise, like, you have no idea how cool the future can be and, like, what amazing things are living inside of you which sounds super creepy and like there's an alien, but I mean, I never, if you would have told me back when I was in jail trying to end my life that I would end up writing a book and having a family, I would have laughed in your face because I couldn't see it. Yeah, I couldn't see it. No, no, I, I, I get that. I get that 100%. Now, a, as you were writing the blog posts, which later became the book, I mean, who, were you who were you really writing this for? I mean, I, I'm sure like, obviously you got something out of it. Um, and I know you said for a period of time you were a mommy blogger, but like, who, who did you have in mind as, as you were writing all of this? I think people who had never experienced addiction from the inside, okay. who maybe knew somebody or loved somebody. I want, it wasn't just like writing about like the jail food was bad. I didn't like the scratchy clothes. It was like when I would write it, I would take the reader with me through these moments so they could see the actual like heartbreaking decisions that I had in front of me. And I was so amazed at the feedback. And I realized the more in depth I went, the more graphic, the more like I was embarrassed to share something, the more people applauded me and wrote to me and were like, thank you for just being so transparent. I had no clue. This is what my mom was going through. And this helps me to be less angry at her. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. For the first time in my life, like I was sharing the truth about who I was and being accepted. And that had never happened before. So it was super freeing for me. And, it, you know, some people got some stuff out of it too. Wow. Yeah, no, I'm sure a a lot of people got a lot out of it. And I was just thinking that like right before you said it, that just how much great stuff can come about when you're true to yourself. Like when you're just like, you know, here it is, you know, this is, this is what's going on. I heard uh, one time, like I always keep this in mind, like um, someone was telling me that truth equals speed, which is kind of a weird way to say this, but it's like truth basically equals like the speed at to which you can accomplish things in your life, essentially. Like the more open and honest you are about it, the quicker good things tend to happen, you know, as you're going through that. And I always kind of like that. Now, you said there was a great response and I know there was because I spent some, some time, quite a bit of time actually 
going through a lot of the reviews for your book and every single review, like everyone loves your writing first off. Um, but they all mentioned that they laughed like at, at, you know, a few points during the book. So I know we can't give it all away. Um, I pretty much did. Like they don't, <laughs> you guys don't even have to buy it at this point. Seriously. I, this I is, this is actually the audiobook. We are actually yeah. just going to, we're selling this <laughs> straight to Amazon, yes. straight, straight to Kindle audio. We're doing it right here. Audible. So, but uh, would you be willing to share, like, was there a particular story or, or a little something that, that you shared that people might, it seemed like people were referring to a few like specific uh, instances in the book. And I, I don't know. I think I know exactly but, which friggin' okay. park they're talking about. Okay, and it okay. was probably the pillow fight is what people call it. I don't know, but I was, so in jail, there was always like, arguments and fights and okay. I I'm not a confrontational person um I, like I will let you walk all over me actually I'm such a people pleaser but when somebody talks about my friends I get really like defensive and so there was this girl who was running her mouth and was like in my face screaming and I I don't remember exactly what led up to it but there was like a fight and for some reason my <laughs> head was like I know how you can get her like grab that pillow off your bed and just hit her hard with it like that was my weapon of choice I'm like I'm gonna show this b-word and so I just hauled off with this freaking feather pillow and and she's like did you seriously just hit me with a pillow and I'm like I don't know what I'm doing I'm sorry it's my first time in jail and um, but everybody makes fun of me because the way it's written, it's just like, it, it was ridiculous That's, that I yeah. thought that would be my, my go-to move, like the pillow slapper. Yeah, that's, um, not, that's not what I would picture uh, going down in jail, but I like but it. But she ended up being pregnant, so it was like perfect, because I would have felt really bad that, if I would have hit her with something harder. Yeah, yeah, that would have, pillow was probably a good choice. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm like, I'll show her and I grab a blanket and just flick her with it. But I tried to use humor throughout the book mm. because A, it's all I know is like, it's a defense mechanism, I think, is my humor. But also I, I've realized that like talking to or talking at people tends to become mundane and turn into some kind of lecture but when you're making people laugh mm -hmm. they sit up straighter and they listen to what you're saying and so i i try to always make my messages have a hint of humor because um you know what is life if not something to laugh at even yeah. the serious stuff yeah no i i yeah and especially it was such a, a serious topic for sure and and the humor it's relatable, right? I mean, when I'm reading something or, or watching something that's funny, it's like you can relate to that person yeah. more. And you do get a little more drawn in. So I can see, uh, you know, what, what people are really loving in, in this book. Now, speaking of humor, uh, you mentioned your videos uh, a moment ago. Tell us about juggling the Jenkins. Like, how, what, what's that all about? And how did that get started? <laughs> you know what? I'm actually so bummed that that was... I mean, it's not that I don't like the name, but okay. So 
It's official. This is exclusive, people. We're changing yeah. the name right I, now. <laughs> I wish I could, um, but it's too late now. It's just who I am. I so like I said, I started off as like a mommy blogger. I thought that was going to be it. I thought I was going to just write about mom stories on a computer in the form of articles. And then one day I made a video and everybody thought it was hilarious and started sharing it. And I was so surprised because I had never done anything like that on the internet, on Facebook. Okay. I had always loved being in front of the camera. I've always wanted to be an actress. So once I saw that people were like laughing at the videos, I was like, well, this is so much more fun to me because I can be myself and they can. And so I just, I started making videos and they just kind of took off my so my last name's Jenkins and at the time it was about like motherhood and marriage and I was like juggling my kids and addiction and my husband and all you know my bonus daughter and so juggling the Jenkins seemed very clever but it's also the longest name ever in the history of names and I've been having my kids on less and less because they're getting older okay when I first started they were like babies and so I'm like I'll slap you in front of the camera not slap you in front of the camera yeah. I mean like plop you down in front right, of the camera right. yeah. is what I meant please CPS <laughs> come for me but like I had no problem plopping them down in front of the camera but now that they're older and they're going to be going into school I kind of don't want to have them in as much because I don't okay. want I don't know what's going to happen with the internet in the future and they're going to be like is this you and your underwear weirdo yeah. and they're going to get picked on um, so now it's just me most of the time talking about addiction and all these other subjects, depression, anxiety, but juggling the Jenkins. So people are always like, oh, you're the girl juggling with the Jenkins. And I'm like, well, we're not like when you say it like that, it sounds like we're juggling. Right. That's, yeah. It's not it. If you look at my Instagram. A family juggling troop. Yeah. We so travel around. <laughs> yep. People are always so confused. So what do you guys do? Do you juggle? And I'm like, No. That's just the name. So I was like, maybe I can just rebrand to Tiffany Jenkins, mm -hmm. but it's not easy. It's on all my merch. It's and there. Yeah, it's just who I am forever now. That's okay. I still yeah. like it. I still Thank like you. it. Thank <laughs> you. So now, uh, speaking of shows, uh, if, if we could call that a show, which I think we could, um, you've been on a few different shows. I know you've been on the Today Show uh, the doctors and, and you're going on, you're speaking about addiction. What is the, with a, uh, an audience like that, like, and, and I know you do speaking engagements too, but with an audience like that, like what, what is the message that you're really trying to get across? Like, what is the core message you're sharing? That's a good question. Um, the message is just, I want people to realize that like, if they're feeling hopeless, that about a loved one who's addicted, and feeling like there's no light at the end of the tunnel that all hope is not lost and that it is possible to fight, to have that person back because I, and as the addict as well, it's, I remember feeling so hopeless. And when I would look to the future, it was dark. And I just want people to see, like, look at me, look at me having fun with my kids. Look at me laughing and joking and struggling to make it through every day. Like my life isn't perfect, but I'm clean. And that's something that I never thought would happen and it can happen for you. So on the, on these TV shows, my biggest message is there's no such thing as a lost cause. Like there's always hope. And it starts in my opinion with education. Um, and that goes for the people who love an addict 
because you just, you look at them and you're like, just get clean, stop doing drugs. What right. are you doing? Yeah. And there's so much more to it. And I found that if you take a few minutes, there's things that you can do that can, that can help everybody. It's a family thing. And I think everybody needs to be in it together. Mm, that's a great point. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think are some of the bis- biggest misconceptions that maybe, you know, someone that is not the addict has uh, about addiction? What, what do you think are, are some of those things that pop up? I think that a miss, I mean, for the most part, I feel like people get it. You know, you're an addict and all you care about is drugs and you'll put the drugs before your family. And like, it's true. And so it's not like a misconception, like you're exactly right. That is technically what it is, but there's so much more to it. So to answer your question, I think the biggest misconception is that we, okay, but here's the thing is it's tricky because it's not really a misconception. This whole, we're choosing to continue taking the drugs. Yeah, right. And while, yeah, I mean, technically we are choosing to do that. Mm -hmm. So is that a misconception? I mean, not really, but I think that the misconception is not realizing all of the things that lead up to that, all of the things going on inside, all of the inner turmoil. And so if you're not an addict and you imagine like if you're on fire, whether or not you lit yourself on fire or somebody else lit you on fire or you accidentally lit yourself on fire, if you're on fire, you're... the in so much pain that you, you just want water. You just want to jump into a lake of water or pour a bucket of water on you. It doesn't matter how you got there, it just hurts and you wanna make the pain stop. So you need a bucket of water. And like, as an addict, that one tiny pill is your bucket of water when you're on fire. Yeah. And so for me, it's like, yes, I am choosing to do this because I would rather die then go through the pain of withdrawal. That's how it was for me. Mm-hmm. Every single minute of detox was like a year. And it was so painful. I would have done anything in that moment to stop the pain. And except for reach out for help at the time, because yeah. there, there was this huge stigma that all addicts are lost causes. I don't know if you've noticed, but I feel like there's a shift happening in the world. Oh, for sure with people like you coming out with podcasts and talking sure. openly yeah. and honestly, we're chipping that stigma away. And so mm-hmm. I think about it all the time. If I was addicted today, it would be so much different. I think as far as asking for help and sharing my truth, because it's so much more understood today. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think, you know, you said that early on your conception of, what an addict was, was, you know, an old guy under the bridge or whatever. And I, I hear so many people say that, and I, that's probably along the lines of what I had in my head initially, but you're right. I mean, I I think it's changing if anything, just because there are so many different people out talking about it, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and so you can't really say, well, that doesn't look like an addict. That didn't look like an addict because it's, you know, you see all these different people and it's in your face these days, you know I mean? Yeah. Um, which is, which is so cool, but yeah, I'm with you. I mean, you know, even seven years ago, which in the big picture is not that long. It was very, you know, it's just very different. Like there weren't a lot of people out just talking about it. And I, you know, I, I appreciate you writing your book and having, 
telling your story in a way that people can relate and having some humor in there because yeah, the stuff I found and let's be real, I wasn't sitting down like reading books and shit all the time, when, <laughs> you know, when I was researching like how to get sober, but, um, I know that what was out there, it was just like, you know, almost like reading a textbook. It was just like, you know, not interested, yeah. know, not, not interested at all. Um, yep. and I don't think my, my family members really would have been interested in it, even if they did want to learn more about what I was going through. So can you tell us a little bit about, and I think you did already, but can you tell us a little bit about what your recovery looks like today? Yeah. Um, so I just, it makes me so happy to think about it because when I, I have friends around me today who are, they're actually friends. Like I had no clue what a friend was until I got in recovery. And there were people who were willing to come over to my house when I'm depressed and help me clean and, you know, help me get out of these funks and talk me through them. There are people who show up and don't expect anything in return. Um, the pandemic has made things a little weird as far as in-person meetings, but there's like these Zoom meetings for 12 steps almost every hour on the hour. And so if it's late at night and I'm wide awake and I'm scrolling and my brain is just reeling and going crazy, I can literally just pop into this meeting for free and just listen and just be reminded. It's, I, since I've gotten clean, I've gotten married and I've had two children and I have a bonus daughter who lives with us half the time. And it's like so crazy to me because I never thought that I could feel so loved and be able to give such unconditional love. And they actually just got home. I can hear them downstairs. And so my kids are four and five right now. Um, and they're just the best. And if it was up to me, they wouldn't be here. If it was up to me, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. Um, but I have these gifts and I get to connect with people like you and my supporters on a daily basis. And the biggest thing for me is like waking up every day and not being leashed to this drug, not mm. being a slave to something. It's like, I, I say it all the time, but I felt like I was the tin man and it was my oil and I couldn't function and I would just freeze up if I didn't have my drugs. And so just to have money and pay my bills, which is not fun, but it's something that I'm still proud of. And laying my head on the pillow at night and being like, okay, today was a weird day, but you didn't use, like, good job. It's, it's a gift. Every single day in recovery, even the crappy ones, are magical to me because if, if it was up to me, I wouldn't get to experience them. That's so awesome. I... I... And I, I love like hearing stories like yours, you know, and just, and everything you have gotten out of, out of recovery. Like, it's just so cool. And, and I even love hearing when someone says like, you just did like basic stuff, like paying bills, you know, yeah. because like someone that's, someone that's not an addict or, or, you know, hasn't struggled with it. Like they wouldn't get that. They'd be like, you know, that's a, right. Know, but it's like, no, you don't understand. Like, I mean, you know, earlier when you were talking about the pawn shop, like one of the things that uh, assignments that I got while I was in treatment, they said, okay, like we're going to do an art project today. And we want you to draw like what your addiction looked like. I drew the pawn shop. I mean, really? that's, yeah, I drew the pawn shop because that's, you know, that's just where, where I was, wow. you know, all the time. And 
So for someone like that, like exactly what you're saying, you know, to even be considering doing a normal thing like paying bills, um, you know, much less all the other gifts that you just described that I just love hearing that um, so, so much. Now, before we wrap up, I think you've already given some really uh, great advice, but is there maybe one piece of advice that you'd like to share with the sober nation, maybe for someone that's that's new to this or thinking about getting sober or maybe struggling? I love the name sober nation, by the way. Um, I think that if somebody is struggling, the biggest thing is, well, something that helped me so much was there was this man and he was like in his sixties and he was on an oxygen tank at a meeting and he looked over at our row and he's like, I am 65 years old. I have like eight months to live and I have kids that I haven't spoken to in over 10 years. I have grandkids that I haven't even met yet. And as of today, I only have five months sober or whatever it was. He's like, you have your whole life ahead of you. And I can never go back and get that time, but you can. If you start today, your life will look completely different a year from now, and you still have a chance at being happy. And it wasn't about his age or anything like that. It was just the fact that he was at the end of his life with so many regrets. And I think about that all the time. Like if I start doing something today, my life could be completely different a year from now. And so if you're struggling, I know reaching out for help is hard and change is hard and it's scary, but as somebody who has been through it, I can promise that, um, you know, if you start today, you'd be amazed at the incredible things that are waiting down the road for you. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome advice. And I, I agree wholeheartedly with that because I know that I couldn't even fathom or begin to picture some of the things that I've seen in my life. And it sounds like, you know, you had the exact same experience. That's so cool. So yeah. you can uh, learn more about Tiffany, her book, and check out a ton of great content by visiting jugglingthejenkins.com. Thanks again for coming on the show, Tiffany. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the info from today's episode. Sober Nation FM is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Sobriety Engine is a free online community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. This show is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle while supporting your sobriety, you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And again, whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. Nation, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.